Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. And we're asking the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? Well, the big exciting news for today, well, we have two big exciting newses. Is that a word? Newses? <laughs> I don't think that's a word. But anyway, well, so today is our season finale for season two. And so we're excited to have gotten to the end of another season. We think we did five more episodes than we did in season one. And we changed up the format a little bit from what we did the first season, figured out a few things as far as scheduling. And and we actually stuck to our schedule every two weeks. We did it. Yeah, I was pretty pleased with that. So Except for that break we took in the middle. Yeah, that was like impromptu. We're like, hey, let's take yeah. a break just for fun. <laughs> so, but yeah, that was cool. So for our a season finale last year, we did a Q&A. And so this year we thought we would do the same thing, but we would mix it up a little bit. And so we are pretty excited to have a, I'm going to use the term celebrity guest co-host. She does not approve of that term. Yeah, she doesn't like <laughs> it, but that's too bad. So we have Arlene with us from The Graceful Atheist. So welcome, Arlene. Hello, Susie and Phil. Thank y'all for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, so I'm going to not even pretend to like not be like fanboying it's always fun to like see people that you listen to or that you talk to every day on social media and then be able to talk to them in real life so that's really fun so thanks yes. for being here absolutely yeah i i love your guys's vibe your guys's i don't know <laughs> you guys vibe. that works it's the same as news is we'll just make up yes. words, you know it's fine. we do it all yes. the time yeah you say it with confidence yeah. Right. So Arlene, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, like faith background too, and then a little bit about you know how you got connected with uh, David and the Graceful Atheist, and then any other fun facts that you'd like to share about yourself. Okay. Um, I did not grow up in the church. I became a Christian when I was in college, and then I met my husband through college ministry. We were like super Christians. Like we, if if people were Christians, if we were definitely Christians. Love <laughs> Jesus, all the things, did all the things. He was a worship leader. Um, he was going to school to be a pastor. I mean, all the things. And um, everything worked really well for our 20s. And then we had kids and he started struggling with like, mm, if I feel like I'm a better parent than I think God is, like some mm -hmm. something's wrong, you know? And um, because we were Calvinists. So like God could just do atrocious things and we have to be okay with it. Right, right. Um, yeah. So he started struggling. Then just having children and little people in your home, everyone is just trying to survive. And so my mental health was going down while his faith was going down. And then I think 2017, or 18, he was like, I don't think I believe anymore. And I was like, oh, God. And then, well, <laughs> oh, God. And then, God, no one showed up to fix all the problems. Right. And, yeah. um, so that sent me on a journey to figure out, like, okay, what do I believe? So while I'm on these two parallel paths trying to fix my mental health and bring my husband back to Jesus, I eventually was like, actually, I don't think I believe any of this stuff anymore. Right. It, then COVID happened. It all kind of just happened at the same time. Like it just worked out well. And so we weren't going to church. And COVID was happening. So I was what Lars, you guys know Lars, what he calls rage learning. Yeah. I just like rage learned all of 2020, like Bart Ehrman stuff, anthropology stuff, uh, evolutionary biology. I mean, everything I didn't, I had never learned how religions get started, Karen Armstrong's work. And I was like, yeah, I definitely don't believe this. And one of the things I did was look up podcasts. I was like, I think I'm an atheist. I don't question mark. And so <laughs> I looked up atheist podcasts and I found the thinking atheist started listening to Seth Andrews. I liked his stuff. And then I found the Graceful Atheist and started listening to David. And I loved, loved hearing people tell their stories. Like, yeah. I loved it. 
in 2021, he was like, hey, I really need somebody to start a Facebook group. And I was not on Facebook at the time because Facebook and <laughs> because Facebook. <laughs> yes. Because Facebook. Because <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> hashtag toxic. Yes. Oh, it's just the worst. <laughs> and so I just sent him a voice message and was like, hey, here are the things I could possibly do. I've never done this, but here, here are my qualifications. And he was like, sure. We started the Deconversion Anonymous Facebook group. And now we have at or over a thousand people. I'm not sure. And because David has tried to keep the tone of the podcast graceful and kind, that's the feel of the group. So people who are still deconstructing or people who are like, I don't believe any of this foolishness anymore. (laughs) You're able to be in a place where you can post stuff and you can rant and be angry and people are compassionate, but you can also ask questions. And for the most part, people are kind and considerate in their answers. And yeah, so that's what I'm doing for David. And then I got to start hosting. He asked me if I wanted to try that and I've never done anything like that. And that sitting across a Zoom type thing and someone being willing to tell pretty much a strange so much of their story and you get to be part of that like it's very honoring and it's and a lot of times it's a lot of fun and of course you just learn from people so yeah so that's what I do and it's fun and I love it well that's awesome I was on there I don't know last year or two years ago to tell my story and there was something really liberating about telling that story and Mm -hmm. you're not trying to sell the story you're just like here what's the story tell me you know and I think that's really refreshing and it feels so safe like especially with Arlene I don't know something about her voice is very soothing. Yeah, it's that Southern charm. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You really have to put yourself in a book. You guys know this to just listen and like not have any kind of judgment about what the story because some stories I've already talked to the people and know where it's going to go. And then some stories I'm like, I had no idea this was where we were headed in this story. And you just you just let them tell it and you just listen and be a container for their story. And yeah, it's it's a um, it's a neat experience. Yeah, we've had a couple like that where like they take a turn and you're like, wait, what did you just say? (laughs) And sometimes it's like something you might want to push back against, too. And then you're like, okay, well, how do I push back against this, but still keep it like respectful? Our, you know, method is kind of about like critical thinking and like, okay, well, how, how do we tie this back to the theme and the the motivation of our show to being about critical thinking and asking dangerous questions, you know? So yeah. of all the guests that you've had and stories that you heard, does any stand out to you as like extremely powerful and why do they stand out to you? Mm, let me think. Um, one, they're an Instagram friend and their name is B and they went from like super fundamentalist. I want to say homeschooled. I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure like homeschooled environment, all full on purity culture, no sexual activity until like way into I think 30s to like loving their body, showing their body almost as nude as you can get on Instagram and like watching people not just like deconstruct their religion, but deconstruct how their religion affected all kinds of other parts of their lives. And then not just being like, okay, I'm not going to let this control me anymore, but then being like as liberated as they can be. Like I love stories like that. And then thinking about different women's stories who spending their whole lives thinking they are not subhuman, but pretty close to it, like yeah. not quite as loved by God as the men are. Right. Um, and then being able to just let that shit go. Yeah. Yeah. Just watching women be able to take ownership of their lives um, and no longer have to be controlled by others. All 
All right. Well, let's get into our Q&A section for those of you who are listening that maybe didn't send in questions. We basically just asked on a couple different groups for questions for the show. So people sent in questions on various topics. Some of them are theological. Some of them are like kind of personal. I mean, I think it's a good thing to say that like we don't claim to have the concrete absolute answer that this is the right answer to this question. (laughs) So I think all of these answers are like kind of open to discussion and, you know, somebody might not agree or like our answers, which is totally fine with us. Well, that's why I like that there's three of us because we have probably three different perspectives. Yeah, I think it'll be very interesting to see the different perspectives on some of the questions. So so our first question came in from Megan and her question was, can you help me understand what the apologists think about verses such as happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks and other garbage things. (laughs) I love other garbage things. (laughs) She has like a two part question. So one is about the apologist response to that. And the other one is how do you not get bitter and angry as you deconstruct? So let's talk about the first part about garbage verses in the Bible. How do you think apologists think about it? And then maybe we can talk about like how we think about it too. So who wants to go first? Guess first. Yeah. Yes, first. Um, <laughs> when I was a Christian, we didn't read apologists. So like I knew people who listened to apologists, like there was some guy on the radio, Ravi Zacharias, eek, mm. that guy. <laughs> but we never, I never read any of their stuff or listened to them. I don't know why, but I know as far as the pastors that I was under, a lot of times they just skipped stuff like that. Like some of those verses, I didn't even read till I got a book called The Contemplative Skeptic, which is kind of like a short pieces about, I don't even know how to explain it. It was like, here are all the terrible things in the Bible. Those were the first time, even though I'd read the entire Bible, that I realized all of that junk was in there because pastors that I knew, they all stayed in the fir- they stayed in the New Testament and they never talked about the really difficult Old Testament stuff. You had some of the big stories and that was it. Right, right. Yeah. All, the, all the happy stories. And then yeah. it's kind of funny because you hear some of those stories now and you're like, oh, I used to think that was such a great story. And mm-hmm. now you listen to it, you're like, oh man, that story's fucked up. Like Noah and the flood is the one that kicks me yeah. in the ass yes. every time I think about it. And Abraham and Isaac, those are the two ones to me that I'm like, oh man, those stories are fucked up. <laughs> yeah, well, they spin them in such a way that you think that they're positive stories and it's a, exemplifies God's love. Mm-hmm. But they're defining mm-hmm. love differently when they're talking about God than yeah. when they're talking about a human like a, a parent love or a spouse love right yes i remember feeling like there was an expectation as a as a lutheran like you fall in line you have faith you don't need apologetics <laughs> that's not for you right. mm. you know the expectation is that if you need apologetics there's something wrong mm. so i don't oh, even wow. think i knew what apologetics was until i've talked about this before but there was like a sermon series where it was like tough questions the pastor mentioned the word apologetics and i was like oh what's that i never even heard <laughs> of it so then I Googled it and that started kind of a landslide. Yeah, that's so interesting. That is. So like, did you ever hear a pastor in Lutheran world talk about this story and like give an explanation for it? No, but I did look in my Lutheran study Bible about this particular verse that Megan asked about. It said that since Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, then they wanted Babylon destroyed. And so they were pleading for God to enact revenge. And it was okay because God's doing the revenge, not the people. So it's not violating the verse that's like, do not repay anyone evil for evil. (laughs) Right. Which I think it's, again, it's giving God permission to do things that humans can't do. It's immoral for humans to do, but it's fine for God to do. Yeah, yeah, that's a 
that's interesting. There's always a way to like kind of explain away. Uh, that's kind of mm-hmm. what apologetics is to me. Like, yeah. I don't think I got into apologetics until probably college or later. In Christian college, like you hear about like, okay, you got to be able to always be ready to give an answer for the, the hope that lies within you. So that's kind of the motivating verse for people to get into apologetics. And then way after that, I got into apologetics. I found this pastor. I think his name is Philip Nelson. And he had a whole thing about apologetics at like the weekend retreat. And I was like, oh, this guy is so smart. He had all these apologetic answers for everything. That's what I started to really think. Oh, I'm like an intellectual Christian because now I can use like logic and reason to defend stuff. And I could like I, I had all these logical arguments. But now looking back at them, I'm like, oh, wow, all those arguments were fucking terrible and they don't really mm-hmm. hold any water. So I think the <laughs> the one that apologists would probably use to explain this verse would be, I think it's a fallacy called the appeal to authority. And it's one that's commonly mm-hmm. used where you just say, oh, well, God is so much higher than we are. Yeah. We can't understand the rationale of why he would maybe dash babies against rocks or why he would mm-hmm. tell Abraham to go kill his only son or why he would kill everybody in the world in a flood. And we can't understand that because we're just lowly sinful humans and his ways are mm-hmm. higher than our ways. So those thought terminating cliches. Yes, that's what I was just thinking. It's a discussion ender because basically there's no way to have any more rational thought when someone says, well, you just got to have faith or mm-hmm. his ways are higher than our ways. Yeah. I think that's the way apologists would probably handle mm-hmm. a verse like that. Or they would say something like, oh, well, it doesn't really matter for doctrine. That's just like an Old Testament story. So who cares? You know, oh, but like, it's in the yeah. Bible. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, did either of you learn the idea of like looking at the Old Testament through the lens of the gospel or the mm-hmm. lens of Jesus? Like the idea of like somehow God was kind and loving back then because we see Jesus now. So then we can look at those things through that lens. And I remember thinking, I mean, yeah, but it just still felt icky to me because right. the stories were so terrible. Yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So the second part of Megan's question of how do you not get bitter and angry as you deconstruct? Arlene, did you get bitter and angry? Oh, absolutely. When I realized it wasn't true at first, I was like, okay, like apparently <laughs> I was wrong. Like <laughs> it didn't, I was fine. And then I started thinking more critically about the things that I had believed and how that had affected my life. Then I started listening to Christopher Hitchens, God is not great. And I was like, actually, religion in general is just terrible. And so, yes, I went through my whole like angry atheist phase, which even calling it that, I mean, I still, I don't think about it as much because it's been a couple years. But when I start thinking about how how much religion in general, but Christianity, because that's what I'm most familiar with in people's personal lives, lives have harmed them, harmed their children, harmed their spouses, harmed their families, and then just the bigger institution, especially, you know, white evangelicalism, then I start like I can feel my stomach start warming up and my body start getting just yeah, so it's still it still comes and goes. Is there any particular way that you dealt with it or that you find that kind of mm. something to make the anger fade away? For this specifically, it sounds bad, but I just try not to think about it. I try That's not I to too. Get, I, I have to like, step back from social media and not consume what all the Christian nationalism and all the things that are happening. I just have to step back sometimes, which I have the privilege to do that. You know, it mm-hmm. doesn't personally affect me as much as it does other people. But yeah, that's that's true. That's a good point. I do that too. I have to at times, I need to read a book that's not about religion. You know, I need to read yes. just a fiction book. <laughs> yeah, just not think about being ex-Christian for like a week. 
Right. And I think that's why Phil and I had to take that break in the middle of the summer because we just wanted to enjoy our vacations and not have to think about this stuff. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I think that when you start to feel that anger coming over you and that bitterness is starting to consume you, just step back, take a breath, take a break from this kind of content. Come back later when you feel like you're a little more at ease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. you can definitely limit like your exposure. Well, some people can. Yeah, not everybody can. Yeah, not everybody has the luxury of saying, "Oh, I just don't want to think about this." You know, because yeah. maybe they're living in a house with a spouse. They're married, exactly. Yeah, or their parents are doing this, that, and the other thing. You know, so for me, I think it's important to recognize that like bitterness and anger and whatever is, it's okay. Yes. I kind of view the whole deconstruction process through the lens of the stages of death and dying, you know, in psychology. So there's like a a grief process and anger is a part of that process. You can't stay in that phase, but it's certainly appropriate to realize that there's some stuff that we dealt with and it's okay to be mad about it. And because we've been told for however long that anger is a sin bitterness is Mm -hmm. a sin you know there's going to be some like aversion to being angry and feeling like oh i can't be angry about this i just need to get over it well we're not made like that you know you don't just get over things especially if you've experienced trauma you don't just get over trauma and i see this a lot and when people post in the various groups like how do i get past this specific thing i'm thinking of one particular person that has been in a lot of groups that is always posting about i really don't want to believe this anymore but what about if Paul, blah, blah, blah. And you guys both know who I'm talking about. And I don't know how many times I've replied to this guy and I've talked to him privately too. I've connected him with a a therapist and with Bart uh, Campolo, like trying to help him. Like, dude, you need to address your trauma because... You are not in a place where you can, I can say, just stop consuming this content because your brain will not allow you to do it. Yeah, You're allowed to be bitter at some point as you progress through deconstruction, you're going to get to the point where it doesn't consume your whole mind space, you know, and that's only really happens with time, I think. And it, it happens by replacing all that bad programming with new data. Yeah. Reading yes. different books that kind of reinforce your new outlook on life, I think are really important strategies to kind of get past that bitter and angry phase. But don't yeah. try to rush through it. Yes. Take your time with it, sit with it. And then mm-hmm. at some point you'll you'll realize, okay, hey, I'm not mad anymore. Yeah. And it doesn't mean at some point the anger is not going to come back because you're going to see something that somebody does and you're gonna be like, ooh, that makes me mad. <laughs> you right. Know? Especially and- when our lives are still so connected to other people like our parents. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And with family, there's so many other layers that are also there inside your body that have been there for a long time. You have to deal with that. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully, Megan, that's a good, good enough answer for you. <laughs> Feel free to, you know, definitely ask follow up questions like on the Facebook group and stuff, and we can keep the conversation yes. going there. Our next question comes from everybody's favorite genius. Robot. Lar- uh, yeah, our favorite, favorite oh, robot. alien. He's an alien. Alien, alien robot uh, AI, <laughs> Lars. Um, so he asked the question, what seemingly trivial ways have you reclaimed your identity that was suppressed as a Christian? Examples, watching R-rated movies, swearing, celebrating Halloween, wearing bikinis, doing things just because you like to do them, etc. I know I like to wear a good bikini every once in a while. <laughs> it's really freeing. And that's a mental image. No judgment zone. Right. Yeah, exactly. But what about you guys? Do you guys have any things that have you know maybe it just seems like a small thing but you're like oh i can do this now and i don't feel guilty about it like well 
So not having grown up in the church, when I saw this question, and I've talked to Lars a hundred times, Lars and I are friends, and we've talked a lot about the things that you know we've taken back. But I realized when I was reading this question that all I really did was take the things that before I became a Christian, I enjoyed. And then like, while I was a Christian, they were considered bad. <laughs> and so then I just went back and started doing those same things again because they weren't actually bad. So it's like, so for me, it's just like talking about sex with my friends and just being <laughs> able to talk about sex like normal adults. I was always that chicken Bible study that was like too much for people. And I'm like, <laughs> does nobody else like this? Like, I don't understand all these women. And then I found out they had like terrible douche canoe husband. So, you know, that was a whole different conversation. <laughs> but but um having guy friends, I can have guy friends. Like I can talk to guys on the internet and we're friends. Like we had rules around like if the pastor contacted you via some kind of message, his wife had to be in the message. And it's like, mm. I just need you to tell me to be there for Tuesday's meeting. Like you don't right. goodness. Yeah. Uh, like I don't yeah. It's like the Mike um, Pence rule. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. We had that kind of not driving with the opposite sex and all those kinds of things. Um yeah. cuss cussing yeah. if I wanted to. Just reading for leisure. You were talking about just reading a book earlier, Susie. It's like mm -hmm. I just I used to think that I needed to just always be like sanctified and self-help and do all this kind of stuff. And it's like, I just want to read, you know, murder mysteries at Christmas time where like somebody died in the library and there were Christmas trees and I don't have to grow. I just have to right. like love that somebody <laughs> was killed and yeah. And so just little things like that, listening to music just because I enjoy it and not feeling like it needs to be worship music, just enjoying regular things that I used to want to enjoy, but couldn't because I felt like I needed to always be growing and all that kind of stuff. Everything so, had to be spiritual. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Everything starts to feel like work. You right? can't just chill and sit on your ass and watch TV, you know, like, cause then you're lazy, you know, like, so um, <laughs> for me, like the Halloween thing was one, cause like we didn't celebrate Halloween. Christmas is the same thing. Like as a Christian, if anyone mentioned Santa, there was like always like this immediate joke of, you know, what happens if you rearrange the letters of Santa? It's Satan. Oh, oh my goodness. Now it's like, oh, you can actually just enjoy the whimsy of the holiday. And now the thing I struggle with about Santa is like lying. To me, it feels like reverse lying about Santa, <laughs> the way I got lied to about God. So I'm like, I sh that's actually the way I struggle with the Santa <laughs> thing now, because I'm like, do I really want to be honest with him about Santa? Is that going to like fuck them up? Yeah. It's kind of funny, you know, how that reverse indoctrination trauma causes problems, even when you just want to watch Christmas movies and... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Susie, yeah. what about you? I pretty much did all, well, all the things in the question I already did um, when I was a Christian. You heathen. I know. Mm -hmm. The difference is that I do curse more now. I use the F word pretty regularly, which is really cathartic. <laughs> I remember reading a study that it actually helps you release tension when you when you curse. And I always remember that. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, let's, Perfect. let's do that. That's good. I I'm going to tell my it. wife yeah. that. My yeah. wife doesn't like when I curse, but I just love it. Partially because I never could. I was going to dress up like Roy Kent for Halloween this year. And oh, I, I love him. <laughs> yes. I please. ordered a, yes. I ordered a freaking costume and the shorts were way too big. But I really was just excited about walking around and just going all day yes. long. Yeah. That's what yes. Roy Kent does. But yeah, there is something that is really 
really freeing about cursing. It yeah. is. Yeah. The other thing I do is now I say, oh my God. <gasps> not something I ever did. It, yeah. It's mm -hmm. almost like hard to say because yeah. of how programmed I was not to say it. Yeah. My four-year-old said it the other day. Yeah. Something in me like felt it felt icky, but I was yes. like, who cares? It doesn't mean shit. My daughter started saying it way before I did. And yeah, she's eight now. Yeah. She started saying it probably when she was six. And at first I told her not to say it, but she pushed back on me. Like she actually wanted me to explain why she wasn't allowed to say it. I didn't have a good explanation <laughs> except for yes. that. Yeah. Everything inside me revulses. Is that a word? I just made it up. Sure. Add it to the list. Yeah. Yep. Everything in me does not like that, but it's yeah. because of the way I was programmed. So I was mm -hmm. like, all right, you can say it. I guess it's fine. Just don't say it around grandma and grandpa. <laughs> right. They'll lose their shit. That's funny. Yeah. Kids will call you out. Like if you don't have mm -hmm. legitimate reasons for things, they will be like, I need you to explain. Like why? Right. Yeah. yeah. Especially yeah. if they haven't been indoctrinated. You right. Know? We want yes, to encourage that absolutely. critical thinking. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's, it's frustrating if you're trying to win an argument though, and they like hit you with something. Mm -hmm. You're like, God oh, damn it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Next question. I would love to hear about books you recommend on the subject of dealing with leftover fear of hell. Also, which of the sects would you consider most insidious? That's S-E-C-T-S, not S-E-X. And which, in your opinion, is more insidious than the majority of people realize? Mm -hmm. Good question. All right. So it's odd to me as someone who grew up fundamentalist Baptist with the rapture anxiety and all that stuff. I was able to let go of hell fairly easily. And I think that actually happened because I let go of that concept while I was still a Christian. And mm. one of the things that helped me was a book called Love Wins by Rob Bell, who now is a big heretic, according to most Christian people. But, you know, he just kind of went into the idea of like that hell wasn't a place that a loving God would create. Mm -hmm. So I kind of let that go. And then kind of the more I've learned about like neuroscience and we talked about this in our last episode, you know, about the evidence for the soul and the evidence for the afterlife, you know, like everything else, I was like, oh, well, there's no evidence for this stuff. So I don't mm -hmm. have to be afraid of it anymore. Yeah. Those are two things that helped me. Like, what about you, Susie? For me, like once I know how something came to be, how it works or like the nuts and bolts behind it, then I'm not intimidated by it anymore. And so mm -hmm. I think just learning about where the belief came from the book that you mentioned is good, but also Bart Ehrman has a book called Heaven and Hell. So I think that's a good one to understand where the belief came from. And then also the Wikipedia entry for hell in Christianity is really eye-opening because it kind of summarizes the hell belief of every major denomination of Christianity and just seeing how they don't even agree on hell <laughs> and what it is, oh, wow. where it is, yeah. if it's a physical place, who goes there. I mean, if they can't even agree on it, doesn't that really betray the fact that it's man-made? Right. Mm. To me, it does. Yeah. Maybe that won't help everyone, but to me, if people just made it up, there's no reason you need to be afraid of it. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Arlene? I don't have a book recommendation, uh, but the Bible Project, are y'all familiar with Tim Mackey, his work? Mm, yeah, um, a little bit. Okay. Well, he, well, I was obsessed with them for a couple years and I listened to their podcast, Exploring My Strange Bible, and they have like a three or four part series called Heaven and Hell, and they pulled apart all of how, you know, what we're taught about hell, where it came from. And so I was still a Christian and was like, oh, I can toss out hell. Now, it did also teach me to toss out heaven, mm -hmm. that we didn't go off to heaven. So that was kind of a weird experience. Mm. But 
the Bible Project guys, I'm not entirely sure how they are still Christians, but somehow they are. <laughs> mm. But that, that series was fascinating. And so it helped me yeah, to be able to see like how we got to the idea of hell that we have now and how it's not not biblical, but you know, whatever that's supposed to mean to people. Right. Right. So when you were a Christian, you threw out hell and then you also threw out heaven yeah. while you were still a Christian. So what was yeah. left for the afterlife? Well, the way the Bible Project guys, they do a lot of N.T. Wright's work. And N.T. Wright talks about in Revelation, it's not that we leave to go to heaven, it's that heaven comes here. Mm -hmm. And so we get a new oh, earth and all that. Okay. And so that's what we're supposed to look forward to. And so that blew my mind, but I was cool with that because I, I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't have all the like the indoctrination quite like a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm here for a new earth. Like I'll take it. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah. What's your take on the most insidious sect? And I don't think this has to be mm -hmm. like an official mm -hmm. like group, mm -hmm. but like, what do you think are some of the most like gross <laughs> perversions well, of Christianity? Like there may be some fringe sect of Christianity that I'm just not familiar with that's doing just atrocious things. But for me, I think the most insidious is just white American evangelicalism as like a whole because it has power and it has money and it has voting blocks. Yeah. And it can, it right. can harm. Yeah, it can harm entire groups of people very easily in, you know, 50 states. And so I feel like as long as it's got that kind of power and money behind it, that it's just as a whole until it pulls apart its racism and homophobia and sexism and all the things, it's going to continue continue to be the 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 worst of the worst in my opinion yeah, you're yeah, right about that that's kind of what i think too the christian nationalist white evangelical yes. thing is definitely the most dangerous i think and for all the reasons that you said like it's there's a lot of versions of christianity that i would look at and i would look at all of those and say that all of them have things that are insidious and bad um mm -hmm. i'm starting to realize now that i think progressive christianity is just as insidious in, because it just basically ignores all the shit that that yes, is really yes. the foundational stuff of what most of Christianity is and says, oh, well, we don't believe that. And that's not the God we believe in and blah, blah, blah. But your whole thing is still based on that. And you're just cherry picking. Mm -hmm. That's got different wrapping paper on it. You know, like mm -hmm. still is the same shitty present. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's it feels intellectually dishonest. Mm. Yeah. At least fundamentalists are like, yes, this is a bigoted Bible verse and we are bigots. <laughs> like, like, right. and then at least, it's just like, at least you're honest yeah <laughs> yeah at least yeah. you're honest like thank you i appreciate that but yeah, yeah the the more progressive stuff because i did i had for like a 30 minute period of my deconversion like ah uh, i think i'll be catholic or just some version of more progressive although catholic's not very progressive but like the the high church feel with the kind of low theology episcopalian maybe yeah there you go that's the word i was looking for yeah and i yeah. was like yeah no i don't i had believed the bible too long to be able to just pick the parts i yeah, yeah, yeah. i didn't like it couldn't do it All right, here's the next one. My question is how to cope with the stress after leaving religion. A lot of people pray when things are going bad because they feel that faith will relieve stress. I think it would be good if you could share strategies for dealing with emotions like fear and anxiety without religion. All right, who wants this one? Yeah. All right, go. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> um, 
Now, I will say I have learned a lot from Buddhist teachers, and just to a lot of people, Buddhism is a religion. But I, I have learned from Thich Nhat Hanh's books. He was Vietnamese Zen Buddhist, so I don't know how religious. I, I don't know his work other than having read his books. But Sebene Selassie and Joseph Goldstein, like meditating, deep, super slow breathing, sitting in nature. For me, lifting weights. This is not Buddhist. Lifting weights and listening to screaming <laughs> metal music. Doing doing my own screaming. Like for me, just things that physically calm my nervous system down, whatever that looks like. There are certain songs that were like from my childhood that are just happy memories. And so they calm my nervous system. And then realizing how like everything's physical. It's mm-hmm. not supernatural. I, I just need to calm my nervous system and I need to get stuff out of my body. So like if there's stress or something, I need to scream or run or lift a heavy <laughs> circle, some kind of like physical activity. And then I can eventually feel better. It's not magical, but mm-hmm. it it helps, I guess, get it out of my body. That's how my kids call it. I just need mm-hmm. to get it out of my body. Yeah. yeah. When we did our episode on prayer, we talked about how prayer can actually help relieve stress because it does all those things that you were mentioning, like slowing your heart rate, focuses your attention on other things instead of yes. what's causing you that anxiety. But like you said, there's other ways you can achieve that without prayer. My daughter's in therapy. I've gotten her mm-hmm. in therapy because, well, she's been diagnosed with some stuff. I've So I've learned a lot about anxiety and it's like your body's alarm system. And so your body is like telling you, Mm -hmm. like you said, get rid of this stuff that I'm feeling. It needs to come out of my body. We're learning about this thing called grounding, which is a self-soothing skill that you use when you're experiencing overwhelming feelings or intense anxieties. What uh, my daughter's therapist tells her to do is like even just suck on a little hard candy, like a sour candy. That'll ground you. It gets your attention away from whatever you're feeling, resets you. There's also this method called the 333 method um, where you intentionally take in information about your environment. So you look around. You So what are three things that I can see? What are three things I can hear? What are three things that I can touch or move? And that just resets you and grounds mm. you. And obviously, disclaimer, this is not therapy. Yeah. If you need a therapist, go get secular therapy. These are just some tips that I've come across. Yeah, those are like really good. I really actually, I like that anxiety. I've I've got anxious kids too. And like, we've done like some therapy, we've got psychotropic drugs flowing through one child, you know, and my, my six-year-old has like lately, lately gotten very like explosive about things. So I'm going to try some of that (laughs) grounding stuff with her because I I could see it. I could see it working with her because she's actually able to process, you know, the anger. She gets really angry about stuff really quickly. You're like, okay, you need to just come back down to earth. Yeah. Same with my daughter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my first response, of course, is therapy, therapy, therapy. Like there's no replacement for sitting down with an objective person who is not a religious therapist who knows how the mind works Mm -hmm. and will sit there and listen and help you process things. I mean, I think therapy is something that people need, even if you don't have trauma and anxiety and whatever, it's just super useful. So for me, the biggest thing is understanding trauma. That's been a huge thing for me. And I've got a couple of recommendations for like resources um, about trauma. Two of my favorite ones to recommend are The Body Keeps the Score, which is a book, and You Are Your Own. You Are Your Own and leaving the fold. Those three books, probably really educational on understanding trauma and leaving the fold, especially is about religious trauma. And there is some value to like the concept of faith, like faith does help relieve stress, but it doesn't relieve it in a healthy way Mm because it basically helps you shortcut the normal response with a fantasy reaction. So you could say, oh, no, I have stress. Mm, Let me think about unicorns. Okay, well, that might work or just replace unicorns with God or, (laughs) you know, you can be in a stressful situation and 
somehow you can say, oh, God is in control. And that does calm you down if you really believe that. But it's not based in reality. Yeah. The other thing I think is important is to realize that any hard thing that you dealt with as a Christian and that you got through, you did that because of you. Not because you prayed, not because you had faith. It was because of you. It didn't kill you. I mean, I hate to quote a Kelly Clarkson song, but you know. What doesn't kill you sometimes makes you stronger. It was you. It wasn't like Mm -hmm. faith. It wasn't God. It was you. So tapping into the things that the strength that we have inside of us is important. And then understanding that fear and anxiety are learned and conditioned responses. And they've been used against us when we were Christians. The fear and anxiety was something that Christianity and religion used to control you. And so now when you have fear and anxiety, you feel like, oh, I can't have these emotions. But they're normal human emotions. You're allowed to have them. (laughs) Like, And in some places, some situations, fear and anxiety are good. Fear is an important thing. It is a preservation response. Like if there's someone in your house, you should be afraid, you know, and then you should do something to, you know, relieve the fear, like run away or beat someone. Unless they belong in your house. Yes. I meant an intruder. (laughs) Sorry. I guess I should have clarified that. But another thing that I think is helpful is finding, identifying your own strengths and skills. Caitlin, who was on our show a couple episodes back, recommended this personal values inventory. Um, and we'll link to this again. The thing I actually did this inventory today, but it gives you this cool printout of like, here's the five things, your top five personal values. And I think stuff like that is very helpful. Knowing who you are, self-awareness is a way to get help with being fearful and anxious. Because if you know who you are and how you respond to certain things, then mm-hmm. you know what you could do to move forward. Just thinking it's like a with Christianity, that we're taught that or that emotions in general are good or bad and it's like they're just they just are they're information that we can use and so not feeling like we always have to react to them and just being like oh wow i feel kind of sad or anxious being able to just name it sometimes can help me calm down and then it helps me i don't know be able to figure out what to do next my brain is working and just not having to have a judgment about the emotion, just letting it be what it is sometimes. Right. I think I've heard somebody say that emotions are amoral. So they are neither moral or immoral. They have no moral value, I guess. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I like that. All right. Why or what caused you to change your beliefs? How was the transition? How long did it take? How it felt during it and how it impacted those close to you? If you experienced trauma due to religion, how has that experience impacted your life at the time and time of impact up to present life? And then they ask about coping mechanisms for PTSD. There's a lot there to unpack. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. Who wants to run with that one? Um, I can go first because I think that mine will probably be the shortest. I think that my story is different because I was never like you guys were totally in total believers. You couldn't even Mm. fathom not being a believer. Whereas my whole life I was a doubter and I felt like I was a horrible (laughs) person because I was a doubter. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What got me to actually change my beliefs well, quote unquote, half beliefs, you know, because I didn't, it wasn't a full belief. But what what started it was I heard um, a sermon series by my church. This was during COVID, so it was virtual. And it was answering questions like, how do we know that Jesus was God? How do we know the Bible is true? I was like, oh, these are the questions I've always wanted answered. And like, I want to see <laughs> evidence. I want to see what these beliefs are based on. And basically the answers they gave was because the Bible tells us so. And I was like, if this <laughs> yep. is the best we got, there's a good chance this is not true. And that was actually where I learned the term apologist. And so there were a few more steps in between. It wasn't like that 
one thing sparked it. It was it just got me further down the road, but that really got me to open up my mind and it'll give me permission to actually try to answer these questions for myself and see if these beliefs had any basis. I wanted to be able to say I believed it, but not because I was indoctrinated into it and mm -hmm. not because anybody told me to believe it and not because a book told me to. I wanted there to be something deeper than that and there was mm -hmm. nothing deeper. And so I just had to discard it altogether as not being true yeah. or good. Yeah. How was the transition out of that? Like once you got to that point, like how long did it take you to go from, oh. I'm not sure about this, which you always were, but then you started digging and how long did it take to be like, yeah. no, I'm out. Uh, it's hard because the process of getting to that point when I gave myself permission to question, that was longer than the actual period of questioning. And then when I finally like sat down at Google and I was like trying to figure out answers to my direct questions, that probably was mm. three days to a week. And it was all oh, over. Wow. That's like really yeah. fast. Yeah. But during that period, there was like a few weeks after that when I hadn't told my husband. And it's really strange because he kept telling me I was being mean to him. Mm. And I was like, looking back, I was lashing out at him. I was being very short. I was like these really snippy responses that were mm. completely unwarranted. Looking back, I know it's because I was in a different place than him. I felt like he didn't even know the real me. How was I even oh, going oh, to yeah. tell him? Like I felt so, so mm. separate from him. Like there was this huge gulf between us. Once I told him, and by the way, it took him like a week after I told him for him to become an atheist himself. That's hilarious. <laughs> After that, that gulf was gone and I was nice to him again. It's like without <laughs> even trying, it, it just healed that. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, it's very weird. But that that really does manifest. Like if you have that space between you with your loved ones, mm -hmm. you think maybe they don't even know who yeah. I am. That, that really manifests in a lot of unexpected ways. Well, that's interesting. I think for me, it was like a death mm -hmm. of a thousand cuts, which I think a lot of people would say. It's funny because I've actually tried to write down like the deconstruction timeline because I think I was deconstructing constructing before I even knew it. Even when mm -hmm. I was like deep into it, I started getting these little prods where I was like, something's not right here. And like, I've told the story before, but like the first one was I was going to be a worship leader for this like progressive type worship gathering that my Baptist church was going to try to launch like a program. <laughs> there was this movement in the church a few years ago that was like about ancient future worship. And it was like connecting to like the rituals of religion, but then also making it experiential, which I thought was really cool. So they decided they were going to try to do this. And I was like, wait, every thing I've read about this, this is a natural organic thing that happens. You can't just like package it in a box and make it happen. Mm, so, that, yeah. so I started kind of challenging the pastor about it, you know, and that's actually like why when I ended up leaving that church, because I was like, you can't program this, you can't force this on people. So that was like the beginning of it. And then gradually, I just started questioning things or seeing these things. And I landed in like a progressive Christian church, a Methodist church, and, you know, was started deconstructing things like hell and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then the final straw for me was January 6th. And the whole Trump phenomenon mm. was basically what kind of pushed me over the edge because I was like, I can't believe in a God that these people believe in. <laughs> like, we don't, that we're on different pages, you know. And then from yeah. there, it was more like getting into the, all the logical arguments and the science and all of that kind of stuff. So it seems like it took a really long time for me, like probably 10 years to get through that whole process. And then once it was mm -hmm. over, it was over. Then I was like, okay, I'm out. Like it was almost mm -hmm. instant when I, once I made that decision. Did you feel like at that point when you decided you were out, did you decide this isn't true and that's why I went out? Or at that point, did you think this still might be true, but I just don't want to have anything to do with it? 
I think it was kind of a mixture of both. There were certain things that I really didn't think were true, but there was also part of it like, well, maybe it is true or maybe there's aspects of spirituality that have value, but like there's no way that I could accept Christianity in the form that I had lived before. So, you know, I kind of went down the slope maybe of like, okay, well, I can be spiritual, but not religious. You know, it's kind of like a cover. So I don't think I got to the point of like thinking things weren't true until after I had actually decided I was out. Once I started to kind of look at the logical arguments for the existence of God or the science behind evolution, all none of which I'd ever been taught because I grew up in young earth creationism, you know, mm-hmm. like, so once I got to that point, now, if I tell people, I'm like, well, the simple answer is there's no, and I got this listening to us. I've been listening to debates lately and Arn Ra's favorite freaking response to everything is like, there's no reason to live a life that is not based on things that are evidently true. And I'm like, that's it. That's a perfect explanation of, Mm -hmm. okay, why don't you believe this anymore? Because there's no reason to live your life based on something that is not evidently true. What about you, Arlene? First, and I love to, you know, tease my husband because I'm like, you you went first. When we started (laughs) dating, I was like this bad influence on him and he got all this stuff from campus ministry that was like, are you certain it's the Lord's will for you and Arlene? And he's like, leave me alone. Like, why are you in my business? Because you weren't a Christian yet? Well, I was a Christian, but I did not. I remember I talk about sex (laughs) too much, Susie. So like, I just existed wrongly for these church people. And so he would, you know, he'd get all this crap. So then he was the first one to deconvert. And I was like, see, it was uh-huh. you. It wasn't me. <laughs> That's hilarious. But um, he realizing that he could not worship a God, because he still was like, I don't know if there is a God, but if it's the one in the Bible, I can't worship him. And so that forced me to be like, okay, now what do I believe? Because he's got good points that I don't have good answers to. So then I went on my little journey trying to figure it out. And it started off like trying to help him come back to Jesus. Plus I had my own mental health stuff that I needed to deal with. And praying was not helping me. It was stressing me out because I didn't know if God would help me or not. So my mental health was getting started getting better when I stopped doing the things that were supposed Mm. to help it Mm. and started doing the like bad... Eastern things like meditation and yoga. <laughs> right. And they helped. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this information. Right. And then at the same time, I'm trying to like read all the books to figure out what story or book or theology or something will help my husband believe again. And then over time, I was like, you know, if there's one Holy Spirit and he's telling people in my family that Trump is the next coming of Jesus and he's telling me that like, not that. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. How, how is all this? How is all this working? So eventually it just, like you were saying, a death by a thousand cuts fell. Like it just, it was like little thing after little thing. And then when you look backwards, you like see stuff that was like way before. Yeah. I was like, mm, I was asking questions. I just had forgotten I had asked those questions. Right. I think the person asked, you know, about how long did it take? Um, For me, it was about two years of just really asking questions. But as soon as I realized I couldn't believe anymore. I was fine with there not being gods or goddesses or any of that stuff. And that's when I read, you know, Karen Armstrong and Bart Ehrman and all those. And as far as like trauma and dealing with that kind of stuff, our church life was great. Like I can still recommend the church we went to. I live in the South. Everybody wants to know what church to go to. Oh, you don't have a church? I know one. 
do you go to that church? No, I am an atheist, but I can recommend this church if you really want <laughs> they if have you great need potlucks. a place to go. So like, right? Now, my personal theology made my mental health pretty bad, but that the church didn't teach me. I had like taken it to this whole other mm. level of believing stuff. I was way more zealous than the people around me, I think. Do you view that as trauma? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. My husband would say yes, because the response that I have to certain things is way bigger than needed when it comes to certain things that kind of bring me back mm. to those same feelings. So like I saw there was a bunch after a police officer had murdered another unarmed black person in the United States. I don't remember when this was. Who can keep track of them? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like I don't remember which person it was. So th there was like this, th a black church in town and a white church in town had like had like a prayer thing together. And I was just boiling over with anger because I was like, all this is is performative. Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're, you're going to then go vote to make sure that this is <laughs> keeps happening. Like it just, I was so furious. I was so furious with the church we had been. This was, this is a different church, but like, and it was like, okay, so yes, my, my personal personal beliefs. Well, then I guess that was from the church. And well, now I don't know, Phil. I don't know. Yeah. We're in yeah. therapy right now. Yeah. I'm going to have to think about the that. The reason I asked that is because I think I think that most people that were deeply believers have trauma. Mm. And if you haven't explored what trauma is and how the responses are, you don't know it's trauma. Hmm. Like you said, your responses are way bigger than they have to be. And you're like, well, why? Yeah. Well, way trauma. bigger. So I think what I would say is people need to educate themselves about trauma, especially religious trauma. The books that I mentioned earlier are very helpful. And then if you have trauma mm -hmm. and PTSD, you need actual trauma-informed therapy, you know, EMDR, trauma-informed yes. therapy, something, yeah, something therapy. that is going to address, like, your body holds that trauma and you're not in control of those responses. Like, so I, I would say there's not necessarily a coping mechanism for trauma and PTSD short of getting actual therapy and, and healing from that trauma. So um, there's obviously mm -hmm. things you can do to limit the impact of the trauma, but I will always tell people you just get into therapy and get to someone that is trauma informed because it will make your life infinitely better much quicker than you could even imagine. Okay, next question. How do you find solace in death without belief in an afterlife? It's one of the biggest questions I turn to religion for a long time. Who wants to go? Um, I, I have a not satisfying <laughs> answer. Um, go for it. So, so when I was a Christian, the idea of an afterlife was stressful because I knew I was going but I wasn't convinced a lot of my family were Christians and my dad has never been a Christian. And so everybody I loved besides like my husband was going to hell forever and ever and ever. So the idea of an afterlife was like, this is heartbreaking. I don't want to go to heaven and all the people that I love not go to not go with me. And so whenever I no longer had the heaven to look forward to or the hell to worry about, like 2019, my mom passed away and I was like, I am so glad I don't believe in that anymore because I don't have to wonder, is this horrible mm -hmm. thing happening forever and ever and ever to my mom? So that's my not satisfying answer is that like, I just, I was really glad that it wasn't going to be a thing and I'm okay, even from the beginning. And maybe it's because I'm not, I don't know, I've never been close to death, so as far mm -hmm. as for myself. So maybe I just need to have that experience to be more afraid of it. But I'm fine with like just not existing anymore. 
Mm-hmm. I feel like my children will remember me for a while. My husband will remember remember me for a while. There's my legacy. And then after that, like most people just aren't remembered. And that's okay. Have you seen the movie Coco? Oh, girl. Oh, when Mama F. Coco starts singing, I will oh, just my gosh. Yeah, I can't watch that time. movie without crying at the end, especially. Yes. Oh. Yeah. It's a fantastic movie. It's oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. I think that's funny because I was the exact opposite of what you just said. I thought I was going to be the only one going to hell and my whole oh, family no. was going to be going to heaven. Oh, yeah, I was. I knew that I, if I didn't turn it around and find a way to truly believe, then I would be going to hell. Oh, and I always wished that there was a way to opt out of the system. Like, <laughs> okay, God, I know I'm probably going to go to hell, but instead of that, can I just opt out? Like, I just wanted a button I could press to be taken out of this cosmic test and just wow. live my life and minding my own business. I just wanted God to leave mm. me alone. Wow, yes. I can see the appeal. That would be yeah, useful. Would, yeah. 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 I mean, we just had an episode about this, so if you haven't listened to that episode yet, we, yeah. we kind of go into this at length. <laughs> um, but for me, I think the the solace in death without believing in an afterlife is once you kind of, for me, once I got to the point where I didn't see any evidence for afterlife or heaven or hell or any of that stuff, then I was like, I was kind of like, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. If I cease to exist, whatever, great. And I think it's a Mark Twain quote that said, you know, the universe has existed for billions of years before I was here and it will continue to exist for billions of years afterwards. And like the blip on the radar that we are, are 80 or 90 or 100 years, you know, is essentially insignificant in the grand scheme of the universe, which maybe to some people is depressing, but without having to worry about (laughs) afterlife and knowing that you're not going to live for eternity in heaven or hell, then you can say, okay, well, I'm going to make the most out of the time that I have here. I'm going to work to make the world a better place. Yes. Even if maybe it doesn't matter in the long run, but at least for the time that I'm on the planet, we're going to love as many people as we can, make the world as good as it can possibly be, leaving a legacy because, you know, Mm -hmm. your kids are going to come after you. And that's kind of what matters, Mm -hmm. you know, like what your kids do after you're gone is is important. So um, that's kind of how I feel about it. (laughs) You know, like it was somewhat freeing to not have to worry about eternity. Yes, it's a long time. I feel it's kind of freeing. Yeah. And I can enjoy today. I can put all my effort into the things that I used to have to feel bad for being so important to me. Like God was supposed to be first. Jesus was supposed to be first. And now it's like, I can enjoy my kids. I can enjoy my hubby. I can enjoy teaching little kids, you know, do it, reading a great novel. Like I can enjoy all those things and I can put more effort into this life. There seems to be complacency among evangelical, at least yeah. white evangelicals, as far as like, well, right. it's all going to burn. And it's yeah. like, mm, how about yeah. we not completely forget that our, the generations ahead of us, you know, yeah. that are coming, they're inheriting this app, this planet. Right. That's why they don't care about climate change and any of that stuff. Cause it's like, well, none yes. of that stuff matters because yeah. it's all going to get burned up and there's going to be a new heaven mm-hmm. and a new earth. Well, once you realize that's all bullshit, then you're like, oh, <laughs> we should probably make the planet as good as we can here. So we don't have a yes. hellscape of an existence on the planet while we live here, you know? Right. There's a level of privilege to that thinking because like there are other, like other ethnicities that are Christians who are like, actually, social justice, climate change, all this stuff needs to be important because we're being affected by it. You mm-hmm. guys may not be thinking. You're being affected by it, but like uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ, whom y'all don't seem to care about, are being affected. Yeah, climate change might not be affecting us in middle America. But if you're living somewhere where the freaking ice caps are melting or they're getting violent storms all the time, well, guess what? That shit matters to them. It does, yes. (laughs) 
so let's move on to our next question uh, is how or should you even come out to friends and family? And if you do, how do you navigate the experience and keep your sanity? I live in a small Texas town, uh, which should say it all. I'm also a small business owner, which compounds <laughs> my angst about the topic. So we had a whole episode about this too, like which was awesome because we had like five different people all talk about like, should you share your deconversion with people and why and why not and all the reasons behind it. So mm-hmm. a shameless <laughs> plug for a previous episode, which I think is uh, it's called the one with the round table. This is kind of like it. It was more like a triangle table. <laughs> a, tri- a triumvirate. But I think for like for my opinion on it is like you have to find the balance between how important it is to you uh, for living authentically and maintaining the relationships and connections that you have. So for me, I got to the point where it was more important to me that I could be who I was no matter who I was talking to, even though I knew that it was going to affect relationships specifically with my still very Christian family, everyone else in my family, immediate family, Mm -hmm. parents and siblings are all still super Christian. And I had to kind of get to the point where I was like, well, it sounds selfish, but it was like, I have to live the way I have to live. I have my own wife and kids and family and we're living the way we want to live. And if you guys don't want to maintain a relationship with somebody because I don't believe the same way as you, that's your choice. Mm-hmm. If you're somebody that relies on someone for your livelihood, like you're still in your parents' house or whatever, maybe you shouldn't. But if you're in a place that you can and you want to, then go for it. You know, that's kind of what it comes down to is like you have personal autonomy to do these things. And if you want to do them, do them. And if you don't, don't. You know, there's nobody to tell you if it's right or wrong. That's my thought on it. Yeah. I don't think anybody owes anyone else their story. Like it's their own choice. For me, some of my family are like at the, when I was a Christian, I considered real Christians. Um, and then most of my family were just kind of church people. So us, my husband and me having progressive social beliefs and voting ways while we were Christians seemed to be far more of an issue than <laughs> deconverting because they're like, uh, I'm sure they'll still go to heaven. You know, like they don't really have deep theological thoughts <laughs> about any of this, but us you know, being more progressive and thinking that entire groups of people they hate should have rights was way more of an issue. Imagine caring more about that you think um, gay people should be able to get married or transgender people should be able to exist. You care more about that than my eternal soul going to hell to burn for all eternity. Like that is ridiculous if you really think about it. Like, go on. Sorry. Just (laughs) yes. No, I agree. But to me, it shows me what mm-hmm. the true God is, like what the true beliefs, the real foundation to the things that they think are most important. It shows that. Um, and then, of course, you know, most of my family just didn't say anything. One reason I went on the, the Graceful Atheist podcast the first time was because I just wanted to tell somebody what happened. Nobody was interested. <laughs> nobody asked. I know some people get terrible things from their family, but nobody asked. I was like ready to explain, talk to people when I told them. Nope. Nobody like, wanted oh, okay. to know. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> How did you tell them? Did you tell them kind of individually or? My close friends, I told, like, we all were just happened to be hanging out. It was right before COVID hit. So we were all in real life. And um, what was really sad were the women in my life who said, well, we saw it coming. And I'm thinking, for <laughs> fuck's sake, you didn't say anything? Like, mm. 
I'm I'm gonna go to hell, but maybe they're all magically now Calvinists and they're right, like, right. oh, she'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> she was totally a Christian. She, yeah. Um, and then my family, it was kind of individually just because we weren't we don't live near family. And then yeah, and they they just were kind of like, okay, I'm, that makes me sad. That was a big thing I heard. Mm. That makes me sad. And I was like, I'm open to questions. Not a question. No questions. Yeah, Seth Andrews. He's always talking about how people have a right to be authentic and to live an authentic life because a lot of times we as ex Christians don't want to be very vocal or tell people because we don't want to impact the relationships with our Christian friends and family. But he's like, they are living their authentic lives as Christians. Why can we not live our authentic lives Mm. as non-Christians? And I think that's very meaningful to me. But at the same time, there's lots of implications if you are financially dependent on somebody or you have your safe spaces within some a Christian household, you know, so you can't give up those safe spaces. Don't come out before you're ready. And also you evaluate the emotional toll it's going to take on your loved ones, but don't use that as an excuse to not do it. Like I know for my mom, I just learned today that she cries every day for my kids. I didn't know that, but I can't (laughs) hold on to that. Like I can't, that's not on me. That's on her belief system. Honestly, Mm -hmm. like she was indoctrinated. I'm not blaming her, although she is very stubborn in her beliefs. It's really the harmful belief system that's been propagating this that is doing that damage. And I can't take responsibility for that. Yeah. For sure. And that's something when we're Christians, there's so much codependency and you're responsible for everybody else. And it's like, no, I'm not. Like I'm responsible yeah. for me. Yeah. And and you guys, I have to be okay with you being responsible for yourselves. And if you're not, I can't I can't take that on. Right. Yeah. Which is something that's hard for a lot of people when they deconvert is developing that sense of autonomy and self-esteem and all that. Because that stuff has been just crushed out of you. <laughs> like as a believer, you're not allowed to think about mm-hmm. yourself because it's Jesus first and then others, and then you, and that's how you have joy. Why are women second class, quote, quote, and why do they accept that? The whole serve your master, obey your husband as the man wishes is swallowed by so many women, smart women. Religion is just so highly macho and being told from birth that you are there to serve must be so hard to recover from. For those who managed to escape, when was the seed planted that women are people too? And what was the last straw that allowed or allowed you to get out? This was something that always bothered me from like day one. So there was no seed that was planted that women are equal. It was like always there. And I was like, wait, there's something wrong with this belief system where it says that I need to submit to my husband. Like, what is that about? Um, So, yeah. Just that was an indicator from very early on. But I think that a lot of women do accept this because first it starts with indoctrination. Little girls are injected with these ideas when they are very small. They're easier to accept when you're small and they're harder to get rid of if you grow up with these ideas. And so then not only are these ideas implanted when they're young, but they're told that these ideas are from God, like the God, the creator of the universe. And that if you don't obey this God, you're going to burn in hell. And so there's like a huge consequence for not internalizing this misogyny. Okay. So then thirdly, they make it seem like it's not so bad. Like I've Mm -hmm. heard these platitudes like, yes, you are submitting to your husband, but he has to take care of you. He has to put you first. And in that way, you're kind of submitting to each other. Or yeah, you're not allowed to work or have a career. You can't have your own life. You have to have children. You can't make your own choices, but your role is different. Your role is special. You have these special Mm -hmm. talents that the man can't do. And so that's why you have this specialized role. It's not that you're less than, it's that you're different. You can do things like cleaning sinks. 
instincts that men can't do <laughs> because because housework right. is gendered yes. somehow yes right yeah yes. for some reason yes yeah so that's why i think that a lot of smart women mm -hmm. are duped into this worldview no that totally makes sense and even like i didn't grow up in the church but southern white culture is just is patriarchal but it's patriarchal with that same like but as the wife like you're honored you're loved you know the the man takes care of you he keeps you safe you know you're it's a beautiful cage but still a cage but you don't but you know like you said Susie like as little girls were brought up to think this way and to be okay with that so for me i i had I grew up in a home where I was the only child, but boys were valued just inherently. Like boys and men, their opinions, their thoughts, their needs, their wants were more important. So when I became a Christian in college, complementarianism was just like, oh, we'll see. God has ordained what I had already been taught that men are um, just inherently more valuable. Of course, they mm -hmm. never say that. Of course they don't. We just compliment each other. Um, but yeah, but so I just, I swallowed it and, and I believed it. It wasn't until, yeah, oh gosh, I think back to the books that my husband and I had, like we had biblical manhood and womanhood and we had all these like very thick theological books telling us what I can and what they, they never had lists of what my husband couldn't do, but they did have lists of what I <laughs> right. couldn't do and right. things I could do. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but it wasn't until a friend of mine, she was a Bible study chick, I, I highly respected her brain. And so whenever she's talked about women preaching, I was like, okay, I need you to explain how you're okay with that because this is my first time being exposed to this idea in a way from someone that I respected. And she gave me this long voice message. It was like 10 minutes of all these different things. And that was the first time I was like, huh, maybe this isn't true. And then that sent me on my own, like reading all things feminist theologians and womanist theologians and, and drawing a lot of the internalized misogyny. Not all of it. I still have a lot of things that I realize. Um, there's uh, a feminist author, and I can't remember her full name. She's a Nigerian author. And um, she talks about if you have a problem with something when women do it, but you don't have a problem when men do it, it's not that you have a problem with that thing, it's that you have a problem with women. And so mm -hmm. now I have to, I pay a lot of attention to like, oh, it only bothers me when they do it. That's that's on me. That's me figuring out the internalized misogyny. But yeah, eventually, like you said, when you're told that it's God's will, it's God's way, it's the best thing, and you'll believe it even if you're in like just the worst situation. If you also have the theology of suffering, then it's like, well, this is just my lot. This is how I yeah. glorify God. Oh, it just gets layer upon layer upon layer for women. How did you guys both kind of escape that? Well, I was never really in it too much. So for me, I just started externalizing. <laughs> if that's a word. Yes, Is that a that's word? a word. Yeah, that's, that's a real word. I, okay. Um, I started externalizing the internal thoughts I was having about why the biblical thoughts about women are wrong. And like, I'll freely tell that to like my sister who, you know, my sister has told me in the past that when, you know, when she was getting married that, oh, this is God's will that women need to submit. And that's the secret to happy marriage. And even then, even then I was still a Christian and I was like, no, that that makes no sense. Like, I do not believe that. I guess I've just been more outspoken about it. But in my marriage, I've, it's always been equal. So I never had to worry about that. Mm -hmm. like my, my husband's great. So um, I don't know. What about you, Arlene? So the way I deal with things is I just read all the books. Like my husband's yeah. like, did you really just order all these books? I'm like, yep. I don't even know why I ordered them because they came in from a long time ago when I listened <laughs> to a podcast. 
For me, I read Dance of the Dissident Daughter by Sue Monk Kidd, which was like my first exposure to just thinking of God in the feminine. Mm. And I like I was still a Christian. I was but just reading that was my first exposure to that kind of thinking. Then eventually I read like something about biblical womanhood. I'd have to look at the title. It's a Christian book. Oh nope, not not Rachel Held Evans. This is a newer book. It just came out a few years ago. But it was pulling apart biblical womanhood, showing how it's like this is not a type in biblical the making of biblical womanhood. Um, Now that it's a Christian book, but she's pulling apart all the theology. And then Cassandra Speaks, which just talks about the way religion, all the way back to the Greek myths, is all about is all about misogyny. It's all about men telling the stories and the women it being their fault. And so it was just little thing after little thing, even when I was still a Christian, that I was like, yeah, I don't, I can't, I can't believe this stuff anymore. Which then when it starts pulling apart things that you thought were biblical ways to exist in the world, it's like, okay, what other things mm-hmm. did they make up and tell me were biblical that I read yeah. in the Bible and saw as biblical and turn out no not not really a thing see it's a slippery slope when women start yeah. reading you mm-hmm. start getting ideas yeah. yes <laughs> i love it you quoted gaston that was yes, fantastic thank you yes yes <laughs> i was listening to a debate today between an atheist and a muslim and the muslim kept saying that the patriarchal foundation of all the traditional religions is what makes society thrive and he was trying to like explain this pa- that patriarchy was a good thing like a lot of christians mm-hmm. will say oh well, patriarchy doesn't exist this person was saying oh no patriarchy is great and it's why co- it's like good was it daniel yeah yeah it was daniel whatever Ugh, that guy's the worst he was debating aaron raw and aaron raw's just looking at him like uh you're a full-fledged <laughs> lunatic <laughs> but, even yeah like it. for me as a dude it's like interesting because the idea of patriarchy was something i never even was aware of at all until I got into my progressive Christian years and I went to a church that had a female pastor and I was like I knew I was like mm-hmm. deconstructing stuff because I didn't have a problem with her and I was like oh mm-hmm. well, that's interesting because I was raised you know Baptist and like women can't preach and like I think mm-hmm. the first exposure I had to the idea of a of feminine God was in that book The Shack did you ever read that one? Absolutely not that you was on the list of things with yes. Rachel Held Evans yes. that too progressive read yeah so the idea of patriarchy to me was i never realized like how insidious and pervasive it was i'm like oh all these things are Mm -hmm. based on the idea of like men being the head and women being submissive and i i was Mm -hmm. married before and we had a very christian marriage and you know the idea of like mutual submission and all that stuff it sounds all well and good but then you don't realize that it's not really mutual submission it's mm-hmm. just equality if you actually want to be equal. Like, so I never like lorded yes. things over my right. now ex-wife, or at least so I so I thought mm-hmm. until we got divorced. And then I realized, oh, there was a bunch of things that I did like subtly that were patriarchal. They were misogynistic. Oh, yeah. They were they were all these mm-hmm. expectations that I thought, oh well, I'm the person that's supposed to do this, this, and this and this. And I still find mm-hmm. myself dealing with that now in my current marriage. Yeah. The programming of the patriarchy is so pervasive in, especially you're saying in white evangelical American society, mm-hmm. that any woman <laughs> that has gotten to the point of saying, fuck no, uh, that's not how I'm going to live, do you, deserves a big you know, round of applause. There's just no data to support the idea that men are better at X, Y, and Z than women. They're not smarter. No, not at all. If anything, it's the opposite. Women are better at almost everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's funny. Y- your gender does not dictate your identity. Mm-hmm. That's definitely something that men need to unlearn because 
the men have to take the lead on dismantling the patriarchal systems. They can't rely on the women to do it. And it's not because the women can't do it. It's because the men are the ones Mm -hmm. that are benefiting from the system. So they have to be the ones to say, hey, I don't need this system. We can live together in society as equals. One of the interesting, I don't know the right word that I want to use, like things about what I've learned about queer marriages is like nothing's gendered, you know, none Mm -hmm. of the household chores or things that need to be done, parenting, different. they just figure out, okay, what, what are you good at? Oh, you're good at this. You're good at finances and house cleaning. I'm good at cooking and taking care of children in the middle <laughs> of the night. I don't know. And they just figure it out and they make it work instead of go already going into the marriage. Like with, right. when, when it's a heterosexual marriage, you're already from the time you're a little have assumptions about who's supposed to do what. Hopefully the, the younger generations are much more able to decide you're good at this. I'm good at this. Let's Let's make it work instead of feeling like they have to be stuck in the box of whatever their gender is. All right. I think this might be the last question. All right. This is from Mitch. He is, I think he's a new member to our Dangerous Questions group. So I hadn't seen him post before, but he's posted in there a couple of times. So he asked the question, given that the evidence suggests that humans have no soul and therefore no free will, we might have to talk about that. How should we change (laughs) the way we treat each other or treat others or hold them responsible for the harm we do or they do? Yeah, the harm they do. The harm they do. Well, let's talk about the humans have no soul and no free will thing first. What are your guys' thoughts on that? I did not do well in philosophy <laughs> in college, but it seems like a like a not necessarily logical sentence. Like just one being the therefore, I think throws me off having no soul and therefore no free will. Okay, A, there's no evidence people have souls, but like I don't feel like that has anything to do with like free will and that whole conversation. But y'all y'all talk more about this. It didn't I didn't really know what to do with the sentence. So I was gonna just talk about yeah. the idea of free will. I, th- I think <laughs> what ahead. he's getting at is like free will is something that is somewhat of a myth. Like it everything can be predicted by neuroscience. Like okay, that I can get behind. And Susie uh, referenced a study that they did with basically they could predict someone's response like 12 seconds before they had it. And actually, I was talking with Alex about this today, about the idea of free will that literally with enough data, anything can be predicted. So the idea of the soul being connected to free will, I think, is the it's what separates us from the animals, the soul slash free will. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I don't Mm -hmm. accept the concept really of free will from the standpoint of the way a Christian views it, because if God was omniscient, and knew all this stuff was going to happen, then man truly doesn't have free will. I think I have a slightly different perspective on this question. What I think he's asking, maybe we should ask Mitch. Um, Mm -hmm. What I think he's asking is that given that humans have no soul, then everything happens in the brain and then the brain determines your behavior, your actions and your personality. We can't control that. And especially like how we know things like neurotransmitters and hormones affect behavior and aggression. Like how can we hold people responsible for crimes, violent crimes Mm -hmm. or assaults and things like that when we know that is biologically determined. And that's something that I've always thought about, even as a Christian, like learning in school about brains and how they work and how they influence behavior. Mm. If if Christianity is true and we're judged on our <clears throat> our morals and our ethics and our beliefs, but our brains that were given at birth that we have no control over determine most of those things, how is mm. this a fair system? Oh, well, that's like a totally yeah. different question, like which is actually very interesting. So maybe we can answer this kind of both ways because I was looking at it from the standpoint of like, if you need the motivation of the soul and the afterlife and all of that 
stuff as the motivation to do good, well, then you're just not a good person. Like, yeah, oh, that's interesting. That's kind of why I like the humanist philosophy and view it as a, the best way to live for society because you're you're living with the idea of doing the most good for humans around you. But the converse side of that is like what Susie said, if you don't have any control over your actions at all, and it's all determined in your brain. Well, what about when people do bad things or horrific mm-hmm. things? How do you hold them responsible for it? So mm-hmm. that's interesting. What's what do you what yeah. do you think about that? I'll add to what Susie said. Like not only do we have brains, I don't know that everything in our brain is already predetermined. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. But like, I mean, people live in under-resourced areas. People live in places where they can't yeah. get healthcare. I mean, there's so many variables outside of our control that like influence the situation we're in. Even mm-hmm. do you guys know anything about epigenetic? Yeah. Just the yeah, just the idea that like our DNA passed down to us was affected by the trauma that happened yes. in their other people's lives. And so it's like there are way too many things, too many variables that are part of why we make the choices that we make mm-hmm. or that we're even making choices, you know, how all that works. There's too many variables. So for God to judge us on that, okay, that's just terrible and bad. That's all. That's just right. like don't don't do that. And then as far as us holding one another accountable individually, yes, like I need to think about this understanding that if I were in that person's shoes, had their life experiences in their DNA, I would probably make those same choices. It doesn't always work, but if I try to think that way, I can be empathetic. Right. But then when it comes to like big giant systemic things, like at least in the United States, money gets away with stuff that people without money just don't get away with. Mm -hmm. And so like until that is not changed and fixed and made better, it doesn't like we're not holding people accountable. We're letting people get away way with stuff and then we're harming people who just don't have money to say Mm -hmm. they didn't do the thing like you know or who just didn't do it but can't afford all of it is so complex arlene have you seen the good place did you watch that yes it's so good Spoilers for The Good Place for listeners. Again. I know. It's like every episode, I have spoilers (laughs) for The Good Place. So I I remember one episode where Eleanor, she was going off about the afterlife system and the afterlife points. She was saying how unfair it is because there are so many factors in everyday life that Mm -hmm. are outside of our control. And we're just doing the best that we can. I think when the example was like, you accidentally eat tomatoes that were picked by some migrant worker that you get points deducted for that. But she's like, how can you make good choices when the system Mm -hmm. is this horrible? But I think that that really opened my eyes to, yeah, we are all just doing the best that we can. Mm -hmm. And we're not, we didn't all start from the same level. It's not a level playing field. And so if God set this up, he has a lot to answer for. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Brene Brown, I don't know if you guys are familiar with her work. She says that there's research to show if we just assume people are doing the best they can with the resources they have, like it's just good for our mental health and our physical health to just assume the best about people. Now, eventually, if they keep proving themselves to be acting a fool, then you got to make boundaries. But generally speaking, if we assume people are doing the best that they can, it's really good for our mental health. And we give people um, the, the generous story, I guess, is well, and I How think that say. goes to the idea of the difference between the Christian worldview where the default is we're all sinners and mm, the idea yeah. of humanism that as a general rule, humanity is good. You know, so if you believe from the get go that you are a sinner bound for hell, well, then, of course, the way you hold people accountable is for everything that they do wrong. There's punishment. But if you believe mm-hmm. that people are good and that they made a mistake or like you said, they're doing the best 
with what they had, the resources they had, you know, well, then your response might be different. It might not be jumping to a punishment. Maybe the response is education. Maybe the response is, oh, let me give this person the resources so they can make a better choice next time. I mean, to me, saying that now, it's like almost like parenting. If you view your child as a bad child, then everything they do will fit right into that modality. I I Mm. find myself looking at my kids. I have a a very challenging boy child. I would look at his behavior before as like, this kid just doesn't give a fuck about anything. Like he just needs punishment. And now I've I've shifted to like, why is he doing what he's doing? Not looking at the behavior. You're looking at, you go upstream from the behavior and say, okay, well, what Mm -hmm. is the problem that he's trying to solve by this behavior? Same thing with all of humanity. Like if you look at criminal behavior, quote unquote, amongst low socioeconomic communities or whatever, is prison solving the problem for a kid who has an ounce of weed that's 14 years old? No, he's not learning jack shit. Why does he have the ounce of weed? Because he's got four brothers and sisters at home and they have no fucking money and they haven't eaten in three days. So he needs to go and sell some weed so they can eat. I could hear people raging already. What do you mean? Like it's against the law, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but look at the system that created that situation you know there's a really good documentary about the prison system i don't know if you've either you've seen it i think it's called 13 have you seen that there's 13 and there's slavery by another name and there's a few different ones yeah 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 Susie, you're about to say something it looked like oh no i i don't think i was say something anyway Okay, thinking, thinking about what to say. Yeah, like the violent criminals and things. I remember reading in when I took criminology class as an elective that there are more violent crimes and robberies and stuff committed when it's hot out mm. um, versus when it's cold. And then there's also things like testosterone levels are correlated with aggression. I'm not sure there's causation, but it's definitely correlation. And I was just reading a study where they gathered some people who were aggressive and they would give them serotonin and then measure their aggressive reactions and allow and the group that was given the serotonin had like way decreased levels of aggression. And so if something as simple as a neurotransmitter like serotonin can decrease aggression and aggression leads to these criminal behaviors and assaults and things, at what point do we blame biology? And at what point do we hold the person accountable for their free will actions? And I don't know the answer, but at some point there's a line probably. I don't know. It's like, is it a spectrum? Is it a line? Is it like Mm. a sliding scale? I don't know, but that's that's an issue that I think I want to learn more about in the next few yeah, it's years. An interesting, it's an interesting thing because like, look at the things that are happening in the world that are just like horrific. I mean, for me, like the most horrific thing going on in the world is school shooting or any any kind of like yeah. mass shooting. Mm-hmm. So my general response is like that all these people need to be held responsible for their actions because they took the lives of other people. So mm-hmm. in that case, you view this person, I view those people maybe as inherently bad, you know, because they did a bad thing thing. And I can go upstream and say, okay, well, they have mental health problems. There's a lot of reasons why they might have done those behaviors. But does all of that then excuse that behavior? And what's the balance right. of like, how that, how do you balance the idea yeah. of accountability yeah. and like whatever for someone who shoots up a freaking kindergarten classroom? And that's something you might describe as evil, like right. Ted Bundy, yeah. evil. Mm-hmm. And, but and there's... we don't believe in, I don't, or at least I don't believe in evil. Go ahead, Arlene. I don't know. Uh, 
I would probably use the word evil, but I don't know that I believe I, not in yeah. the terms of like, like demonic not a supernatural stuff. sense, right? Yeah, yeah. But just the idea of like this is a horrific thing that has happened, and and there's a difference I think between like excusing behavior and explaining behavior. Like we can have like here That's are true. some reasons how we got here. Now we need to figure out what accountability looks like. But like we were talking about earlier, with the systems set in place, depends on who you are and what the accountable will there be justice will there be accountability will the people who need help get help because that's um there is a chick who was on the the podcast last year year before um who's in some of the same groups with us and she talks a lot about like in her opinion there's a lot of if you don't have access to mental health resources that are actually really good and helpful like you can go all the way back to like the witch hunts and be like okay you guys just needed some like (laughs) men Mental health guidance, yeah. And and at the same time, the young men who shot up different places, like they weren't some there it wasn't that they had mental health, mental illnesses. A lot of times it was like indoctrination mm. of some kind of white supremacy or masculine in some toxic masculinity, you know, all these different things. So again, it just gets so complicated that it's like there's too many variables to figure out what's yeah. So I don't I don't know. That's my answer. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I don't know that we've answered this question because I don't know that there is no. really an answer for it. Right? I don't even think we know what the question actually is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a multifaceted mm-hmm. question. And Mitch, you know, maybe he need to get him on the con- on the show to, to talk yeah, about this yeah. kind of stuff. Good conversation. I think that's actually a really good like last question because it demonstrates the shift in. Well, I got a hairball. I got a cat now, so I can have a hairball. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so I think it, it demonstrates that shift from the idea of, of as a Christian, there were absolutes. Things were black and white. Mm, and now yeah. you realize, well, not everything is black and white. Mm-mm. Nope. It's very gray. Yes, it is. And and I don't know. I like it better. Yeah. Gray is my favorite color, so I'm fine with it. I was huh. about to say that, Susie, right <gasps> it, here. Isn't that also a lyric from Counting Crows? So gray is my favorite I think color. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that probably is a really good place to end. We've been yammering it up for two hours now, so this could be some fun editing. Um, but yeah, I mean, Arlene, thanks for being here on our season two finale. It was awesome to finally Yay. meet you in quasi real life through the screen. So yeah, and thank y'all for inviting me. This is fabulous, Susie. One day, graceful. Yeah, yes. I know. Yeah, Susie, I will. get out. I will. Get on the damn show. I might need Phil there with me for moral support. Well, I'll just be there. I'll no just worries. mute that myself and be like, here, say this. Like, yeah. <laughs> but once you get started going, you'll be fine. I like, know. Yeah. So yeah, for those of you who don't know Graceful Atheist Podcast, listen to it. It's fantastic. They have a Facebook group called Deconversion Anonymous. Go and join it. There's a lot of awesome people in there. A lot of good discussions. So thanks, Arlene, for being here today. Yeah, thank you if so there's much. there's anything else you want to plug or share. Nope, those are it. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, and I I think that's it. I think David's on Twitter. I do have one very important question before we go. Here we go. Hmm. What's your favorite bird? Girl. <laughs> She's like, bird that's good. calendar okay. back yeah, there, like bird watching <laughs> identifier. Yes. Okay. I'm not going to be as ridiculous, so we'll, I'll just stick with like my current favorite <laughs> bird. Right now, it's the pileated woodpecker. Oh, We have one in our yard, and he just yeah, comes in. He's so big, and I can't even handle it. And I love all the sounds. He sounds like yeah. a monkey, and I just need him to just stay in our Do yard. Do you have the bird camera? Like the, I keep getting Facebook ads for it, probably because of all your damn bird posts, but like it's like a camera. That's like a bird <laughs> feeder that has the camera in it. I don't have that one. There's an app with it that helps you identify the birds too. So, oh, yes. well, I do have the Merlin bird ID if you yeah. are a birder that, we have yeah, that too. You need yeah. Them. Yes. Yes. 
All right. Well, thanks, Arlene. We will uh, talk to you some more again, hopefully. And thanks for being here. Thanks, Arlene. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode and season of the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. Tune in next time where we will continue to tackle the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? Make sure to join our Facebook page, Dangerous Questions. Follow us at theflawedtheologypodcast.com. Subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And we will see you next season, which will probably be... Oh, please don't say January. January. Can we do February? I don't know. We'll see. Join us next season and stay tuned for when that is. Have a swell day. See you on the flippy floppy. And watch out for the Determinator. (laughs) Why did you have to bring out the Determinator? All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. Let's not do that part. And let's Susie forgets the tagline in every episode, even though we've been doing this for two whole years. So that's cool. Are you good, Arlene? I think her headphones might have died. Is she frozen? I can't tell if she's frozen. She's she's not frozen. Yeah, she's still there. Can you hear us? Okay, sorry, y'all. Oh, Oh, that's okay. No, they didn't die. It kept, it said I was unstable and not, I'm I'm not unstable. (laughs) (laughs) Dan, how rude. Zoom's like, hey, you're unstable. It's not qualified to diagnose people. No, really.